Welcome to the Creating Structure podcast from Creating Structure Studios in Stowe, Ohio. Great to have you. Thanks for listening. Maybe we have another session here about business, life, manufacturing, entrepreneurship, all kinds of interesting things. Our guest on the show today is Ralph Gaddy. Ralph, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Great to have you. Great to have you. Um, been wanting to interview you for a while, so let's get started. Why don't you uh, talk about your background, where you're from, what you do, what you've done? Okay, um, I'm from Northeast Ohio, born and raised in Akron. Um, went to school at Cargo Falls High School, uh, spent about uh, 10 weeks at the University of Akron. Um, and then out into the, the work world, uh, working for my father's small business. Um, got married young, started a family later, and uh, 43 some years later, 44 years later, uh, have been at it ever since. Wow. How young were you when you got married? Oh, I was 19. Um, yeah, I met my, my bride in third grade, um, noticed her in sixth grade uh in eighth grade told her she was the one at uh 16 i gave her an engagement ring and at 19 we got married so wow yeah kind of a guy who knows what he wants kind of a guy who knows what he wants yeah that's a good path great and are you uh so how long did you work in your manufacturing career well i was um Right out of high school, I, I joined my father's small business, and my intent at the time was to save some money to 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 make my college tuition payments. And uh, but of course, there was something I, I wanted a little bit more than to go to college, and that was to uh, to get married. So having a steady job in my father's small business, it was a four person small manufacturing company, um, enabled me to. To, uh, to do what I really wanted to do. And uh, I ended up being there for full-time for 30 years uh, from that point on. Excellent. So let's unpack that a little bit. So you started working in manufacturing for your father for what was a small business. The business name was? Uh, the name of the company was A-R-E Incorporated. We were... Um, uh, a, a business that had evolved from what at one time was a retail retail toy store business into what then became a manufacturing business. Uh, so the business was actually incorporated in like 1961, but the manufacturing company was started in 1969, and I joined in 1976 uh, with no intention to spend my life there. In fact, I actually wanted... My intent in life at that time was to be a high school history teacher and to coach high school basketball. That's what I wanted to do with my life. Wow. I like that. I, yeah, I did not remember that. That's good to know. For those of you listening, Ralph and I have known each other since the 80s. And um, stay with us because for those who talk about the hustle and the grind and alternative paths to education and real life experiences, this is a guy to really listen to when you talk about a multiplier mindset and scaling. Um, stay tuned. There's some interesting stuff to come. So you started working for your father. When did you abandon the idea of becoming a history teacher and basketball coach? Um, pretty soon thereafter. Um, one thing I found is that I really enjoyed working with my hands. I really enjoyed um, where I was working. I was driving every day, uh, about 40, 45 miles down into Amish country from, from my city life in Akron. And I enjoyed uh, that part of the world and uh, just what I was learning while I was there. And I really enjoyed learning how to work with my hands. I had pretty limited experience with that growing up, but uh, I got involved with, with, with just that kind of work, that kind of life enjoyed the blue collar deal quite a bit what did you like about it in addition to working with the hands like did you like the physical feeling did you like the fellowship what was it was it the well, tribal nature yeah some of that i think it was just the 
the the way that you could see the output uh. and just watching the product go out the door, um, the the actual processes, uh, beginning to understand what it took to to weld metal together, to 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 operate small tools, and just what how you could take pieces, parts, form, and fab, and actually come up with something that in the end looked good and people wanted to buy. Now, when you were making the caps, were they all aluminum? Yeah, we, we didn't actually mention what the product was, but our, our company was a manufacturer of, of covers for pickup trucks. Uh, what are In this part of the world are called truck caps. And some parts of the country, they're called canopies, camper shells, but they're the enclosures that cover the back of the pickup truck. And, and uh, yeah, we were, at the time, uh, manufacturing those out of tubular aluminum and aluminum sheets. So we would bend a tubular aluminum and then with various, uh, put sheet over it and then use um, windows commonly used like in RVs and so forth and then extrusions to kind of cap off ends, kind of weld everything together, bend, screw it together, put it together. And uh, yeah, that's what ultimately resulted in an aluminum truck cap that would cover the back of a pickup truck. For the people that are curtain wall people that are listening, I mean, again, it's one of the many uses of aluminum. And while the windows aren't the same, they're still small operable windows. They're slider windows. Things have to be waterproof, et cetera. Right. And it, we, were, we were a product that really evolved out of the RV industry. And so that's a lot of where the technology, if you want to call it technology, came from, the know-how. Um, so we evolved out of the, the camping trailer, truck camper, motorhome kind of industry. There's an interesting parallel, although I won't go down far down this path. Um, you know, the Indiana connection with Kokomo and all that, mm-hmm. you know, PPG had a group in Kokomo. There was a lot of extrusion and dye and manufacturing technology, RVs, mobile homes. I mean, truck backs, all kinds of things. Right. There's just a lot that came out of that. Create. There was some kind of creative energy there that uh, found the way to make uses for a lot of these very common materials. So when you say there were four people in the company, did that include your father? Yes. And so when when I joined the company, expanded the workforce 20%. And um, yeah, I remember that first year that I was with the company in 1976, our, our, our sales revenue was about $180,000. So quite a small little company, but um, very educational and most days very enjoyable. So you started at $186,000 in revenue. Tell the audience where eventually ARE, the company you worked for and eventually owned, where did that go? Well, well, I was involved with it up until full-time until 2006. Um, we eventually got to about $96 million dollars in annual revenue. I'm not sure where the company is today, but I'm sure it's much in excess of that. But over that 30-year period from 1976 to 2006, we grew the company quite a bit, 850 employees and and uh, close to $100 million in annual sales. People talk all the time now about multiplier mindset, 10x, 100x. I mean, that's probably 1,000x. It's a lot of X. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Um, so what were some of the early lessons you learned while you were in manufacturing, working for your father? And then at what point did you start, like, did you start to transition into leadership? And like, what did that look like? Yeah, so early on, it was really necessary to learn and do everything. Um, I my my first real role with the company was to do the initial fabrication after the frame for the product was completely welded. And then one day the welder didn't show up and there were no frames to cover because the welder wasn't there. And uh, I just realized that I needed to be able to weld this product together. And I I, I got a few tips from the guy who was my supervisor. Uh, I walked over put the helmet on and 
just started welding because I had watched it so much. And so there was this need to really be flexible. Um, and I learned that early on, that I had to be willing to do whatever, to make it work, to make it go, that you couldn't just wait for the experts. You just had to figure it out. And uh, so I, I learned a lot out of the need to make things happen because it was just me and a few other people. When did you add? Like, it went from four to what? What did that look like? Well, you know, it was incremental um, year after year. We grew every year for 30 years. We grew a certain amount each year. And so we went from, you know, 2 million to 2.8 million to 4.8 million. And we just kind of grew incrementally like that. So we were constantly adding people. But it was a real watershed moment for us when. Uh, early on, um, we needed to make a key hire. And back in those days, you know, paying somebody $8 an hour was a lot of money. And when we had to make that first key hire and, and hire that first sort of semi-skilled person and pay that kind of wage, that was a big moment. And 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 just you know, stepping across that threshold and, and making that key hire. And then the next one was the guy we had to pay $10 an hour to bring in the skills that he brought in. Those were always big sort of steps up that we had to take. Sure. And um, that, was, that was a learning experience, just sort of trusting our judgment, um, believing that it was, was if, that if we were going to take the next step up, if we were going to make that step change, that... We needed to go out and get the people that, that were capable of taking us where we wanted to go. And so I think that was a real early learning was you got to go out and get the people who are going to take you where you want to go because you can't do it all yourself. Were you involved in those strategic decisions with your father? Very, very much so. In fact, I was probably pushing for those kinds of decisions Um and going that direction. I think uh, my father, having grown up in the Depression, uh, much more conservative, um, you know, for the first 10 years that we were in business, his desk was two boxes with a piece of plywood over the top of it mm. because he just didn't want to spend the money to, to have a regular desk. And so I was, I kind of brought in a little bit more of a well, let's, let's do it a little bit better, a little bit nicer kind of thing. And so I was really the one who was pushing for, let's get the people that we need to take us where I think we can go. And a lot of it was where I thought we could go. And I was early on, I think, bringing some vision to the company. And my father was sort of letting me do that, you know, letting me bring the vision, letting me put us out there a little bit. I probably took us to the brink of bankruptcy three or four times. In fact, if <laughs> if I wasn't his son and if he didn't love me, he probably would have killed me or at least fired me for sure. <laughs> so, so you know, it, 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 and there was a lot of learning in that because, um, you know, we were at the brink several times because of things that I advocated for, pushed for, yeah. and didn't necessarily play out the way we hoped, but it seemed like there was always a way to to take what we were learning and apply it to that next step. And eventually we had a run of good decisions that led to a lot of growth. So there was some bootstrapping in the early days. That's about all it was. Bootstrapping. A lot of bootstrapping. Did you, you I'm know, a big believer in that. Yeah, I agree. And if you even watch Shark Tank, a lot of them will say, if you don't have skin in the game, we're not interested. You know, tell me what you've done. Tell me. Tell me your numbers. What have you put in? Right. Um, so, you know, one of the popular social media guys out there right now, Gary Vaynerchuk, he talks about how he felt an obligation to his family. He's Russian, you know, Russian immigrant. His father owned a liquor store. He worked for 13 years in obscurity, felt this obligation, took it from like four million to 60 million. Did you feel a sense of obligation to your dad or did you just like that? dynamic in the relationship? I mean, how did that play out? Well, I, I don't know that I felt a sense of obligation to my dad. I, I think I, I I wanted to be successful. I wanted, I had ambition. Okay. I wanted to, to win, um, you know, and winning meant getting the sale, meant winning meant um, growing, 
you know, we were very motivated by doing better next year than we did last year. And it was a, always, a, it was always, we were always tracking the numbers. I was always tracking the numbers and trying to beat last week, trying to beat last month, trying mm. to beat last year. And I think that mindset was part of why we kept going forward and never had a year where we went backwards from a revenue perspective until about our 31st year. That's really impressive. And then I don't think it's happened since. So oh, That's impressive. When did you make the shift then? Like, would you say if you were director of manufacturing or you were just kind of director of everything? Like, when did you make the shift from applicator doing to doing and managing? It was about 10 years in. Um, so this would have been about 1986, 87. We built our first major facility, um, built a 36,000 square foot building. We moved into it. And, you know, we had to kind of up our game from a management standpoint. And I, I had to, you know, make a conscious decision to kind of step out of the blue collar more into the white collar or the soft collar, whatever you want to call it, and, and to take on more of a management role. And I also had to, to, it seemed like it was important that I take a role in the sales and the marketing of, of the company's products. And so I just began to expand more into to all the various aspects and, and eat, just continually I would have to look at wh which hat do I take off now, um, which, where, where do I backfill with someone who can take on a responsibility and perhaps do it even better than I can do it, and what is it that I can do best or what's my highest and best value that Great I can question. bring in the 40, 50, 60 hours that I'm going to devote to this every week. That's impressive. So how are you learning? I mean, so you're one of these guys who knows everything about that business, vertically, horizontally integrated. You know right. how to do everything there. Um, it but was, how did you learn the marketing and sales? I mean, reading, studying, experience, etc. Yeah, I'm, you know, typically I'm always the least formally educated person in the room. Um, and, um, I compensated by a lot of reading, a lot of listening. Um, you know, one of my, my mother's key sayings always was God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason so that you would listen twice as much as you would mm. speak. And so it was really ingrained in my thinking that I needed to listen. And so I spent a lot of time listening to people. I would ask lots of questions of people older and smarter than me. And I did a lot of reading. I compensated for my lack of formal education by, by talking to people and listening to people who are smarter than me and, and reading the stuff that people wrote that were a lot smarter than me. And, and then trying to apply it. I think that was always critical. You know, what, what, can I, what can I apply from what I've just read? And I would bring these books into work with highlighted passages and actually try to make application of this concept or that concept. And so, so that's how I learned. I think also there is this thing about how the owner, founder, visionary, leader, you know, what they can bring to the customer relationship, to the sales relationship. I think you do a lot of that here with your firm where there's just something that you can bring that really no one else can bring. Um, that there's just something about the commitments that you can make that no one else can make um, because of who you are as the leader of, of the company. And so I would be out there with customers learning from them what they wanted. Some of my, my best teachers were our own customers who, sure. who, I, who would tell me, this is what we need from you and from your company. And I would go back to the team and I would say, guys, if we're going to get more of this customer's business, this is what we're going to need to do for them. In fact, I had a, an annual practice of going to one particular customer who became our largest customer of going out, meeting with them annually, sitting down with a, with a legal pad and saying, Dan, what do I need to do to get more of your business? And just writing down everything that Dan said to me. I'd bring it back to the guys, to my team, and I'd say, guys, if we want to get more of of Dan's business, 
We need to do these things. And we'd look at that list and we'd say, okay, we can do this. We can do this. Let's work on this. We do those things. And sure enough, we get more of his business. I did that like four or five years in a row. It became a little bit of a of kind of a joke, you know, oh, here's, here's Ralph with his legal pad, you know, wanting to know how he can get more of our business. But eventually we knocked off like 90, 95% of that list. And we ended up being their biggest supplier. And I, I believe to this day, they still are the company's biggest customer, but that's how it was built. I mean, there's a lot there. So in fact, you're an extremely educated person because it doesn't matter whether you have a degree on the wall. What matters is what you know and that you're a lifelong learner. So you're probably a lifelong learner. I, I think it I think it I think it does matter. I think I, you know, I let probably left something on the table by not getting a formal education. Um but in the same way it, it's maybe it's helped me stay humble and hungry a little bit because it seems like I spend a lot of my time in conversations with people who are who are actually smarter than I am. And um, but somehow I've got this ability to listen to what they say and somehow incorporate it into my own thinking and make application of it yeah. in very practical ways. It's the implementation. So this customer, Dan, it sounds like they turned out to be not just a great customer, but kind of a litmus test for the market at large. You were really doing what our first guest talked about, new product blueprinting, listening, gleaning information. Right. And and we had 650 dealers at the peak of our of the time that I was with the company. And I would make it my goal to make 100 customer visits a year. Now, sometimes I could make two or three in a day, depending if I was in wow. one major city. But I would try to make 100 customer visits a day so that I could stay close to the customer, really hear what the needs were, and do everything I could to position our company to be the company that met the needs of our customers. So ARE would be a B2B use. Your customer were the retailers, the distributors. They sold to the consumer, correct? Right. It, it works a lot like the auto industry works where you've got a brand that's out there marketing to the consumer, uh, creating brand awareness through national advertising and, and you know all of the social media and, and the web presence and everything like that. But you needed a delivery point. And so you needed a distributor who typically would represent more than your brand. You needed a distributor to actually interface with the consumer, you know, get the information, put the package together that we would then manufacture and deliver to the dealer who would then do the install on the customer's vehicle. So your orders came from the dealers. Right. And their orders came from their customers. Got you. But your marketing and brand representation was at large to the end consumer, really. Right, right. They were the ones who would come in with hopefully some awareness of our product and some desire to, to investigate our product. And what we needed to do is get our dealer to feel really good about selling our product, that they would be able to you know, keep the promise that they made because we were going to keep the promise that we made in terms of quality, in terms of delivery time, and so forth. So how long was your father involved in the business? My father retired in 1988. Um, at that, that particular year, we were a $4.8 million company. Okay. So he left, um, basically handed me the keys and said, call me if you need me. And I think I called him two or three times after that to you know, help out with a particular issue or problem. But uh, he had a lot of confidence and a lot of faith, and not only myself, but uh, the gentleman who was also my business partner at the time. So it was wasn't just me. I, uh, you know, it was actually in many ways a two-family business. There was another family involved, a minority partner, but very significant, very critical to to our development. Um, actually, I, I think you you might never ever find two more complementary. I mean, as complementary as. Uh, Jobs and Wozniak as complimentary as Lennon and McCartney. We were very complimentary in, in our in our business. And and so my partner's name is Aiden Miller, really helped 
me develop and also help the business develop. And we brought very complementary skills to the to the table. That's so necessary. It, was he one of the four employees? Yes, he was one of the four. He was the first employee. And we eventually became co-owners of the company when my father retired. I see. Boy, we could go the rest of the podcast on the whole visionary implementer. Would you say you were part implementer, most visionary, and he was mostly implementer? Right. He was definitely mostly implementer. Um, I was more visionary. You know, um, we were very different. You know, he was he was tall and narrow, and I was short and wide. Um, he was Amish Mennonite background. I was Italian Catholic. He was country. I was city. Very different. Mm. And we looked at the product quite differently. I had I brought more of this, you know, it has to look a certain way. And he brought more of this, yeah, but we have to be able to manufacture it. You know, from his Swiss-German background, manufacturability yeah. was key. From my Italian background, it was all about style and appearance oh, and look. That. And so I would say to him, it needs to look this way. And he would say to me, I absolutely understand what you're saying. But you have to recognize that we also have to manufacture it. But what's so good about him is that no one pushed the envelope more in industry from a manufacturing manufacturability standpoint than he did. Yes, and he ended right. up doing things that a lot of people would have said that's not possible. But he found manufacturing ways, ways to manufacture those things that a lot of people said were impossible. And it ended up giving us a look that was very successful. So you got a lot of the look you wanted. He got the manufacturability, but it took a real constructive tension, divergent thinking. Right. Very much so. Don't you think the best partnerships are complementary like that? Yes. And I, I there's a, a really good book out there called The Power of Twos that talks about that. And and um, I, I really think that that there that we're designed to work in partnership. We're designed to work in community. Nobody gets there on their own. Um, I've never met, met anyone that's ever developed a substantial business that got there on their own. You know, Warren Buffett has his Charlie Munger. Everybody yeah. has somebody. Yeah, well said. That's well said. The book I'm reading is Rocket Fuel, and it's similar to The Power of Two. But it makes the same point of all the dynamic duos and the complete complementary skills they have. Right. But you cannot accomplish your goals as a in business as a visionary without a strong implementer. And I've certainly seen that as well. Yeah, I definitely feel that that's just the way we're designed. It's the way that the the, the human our humanness comes out the best when we're in community and with others and working together towards a common goal. Okay, well, so that's a good segue point because there were two big transitions. One was a spiritual transition, I guess, and the other one was a transition that I was actually involved in, that you involved Richard and I in at the start of our business with when you went fiberglass. Unforgettable. When you went big fiberglass. But let's talk about the first one. So you had a life-changing faith experience along the way some years ago. When did that happen and how did that impact you? Yeah, that was that was 1982. I, you know, at that point, I was pretty self-directed, pretty um, full of myself in the sense that I thought I, I I thought I had figured out how life worked. I thought I knew how things worked. Um, I found it really hard to admit that I was ever wrong or that I ever made mistakes, and um, it just came to a point where I sort of came to the end of myself. And I had a customer tell me. He said, Ralph, that's your problem. You think you're always right. And, wow. I, you know, it just really brought me down to the point of really searching for something different. And then my partner, Aiden Miller, who at that time was my boss in the shop, um, really lived a kind of exemplary life that I wanted. And, and then there was my wife's influence. And there was a confluence of factors that all kind of brought me to this place of saying, I need to pursue something different, something, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to get there with this kind of mindset. And so that led to an exploration of the, of, of the scriptures and exploration of faith issues and a, a confrontation where I just sort of said, you know, it's not about me. It can't be about me. And if I'm going to 
be the person that I want to be, I'm going to have to have a, a different mindset, someone, something else. And that, that, that something else was, was, was Christ. You know, it was an understanding that I wasn't going to get there on my own. You know, and uh, I think that's been a consistent theme of my life that I don't I've never gotten anywhere on my own. Uh, my wife's been a huge influence. The Lord's been a huge influence. Um, anywhere positive. My friends have been a huge influence. Anywhere positive that my life has moved. It's been in, in partnership with others. I haven't done anything on my own. That's a really self-aware observation you know i was thinking about that the other day anybody who says there's quote a self-made man they're disrespecting many people the parents the aunts and uncles and friends and all those around them and that a customer would care enough to say or at least be frustrated enough to say or (laughs) honest enough to say ralph that's your problem you think you know everything but that must have been a real punch it was it it took me down and it really caused me to start thinking about, you know, where I where I was at. And, and I think I was even feeling that for my coworkers as yeah. well. There was just, there, there began to be this barrier between me and them about kind of how I saw things, how they saw things. Strong-mindedness, uh, this undercurrent. Yeah. And, and I'm like 22, 23 years old. And what does this kid really know? Yeah. And uh, so it was a wake-up call. And, um, and... And it, it transformed the way that we did business. It, it, because it, like a lot of things, I took it very seriously. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm kind of an all-in kind of person. And I just really went all-in for, I'm going to do this differently. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to understand what, what God wants from me. And I'm going to try to do it in this business. You're going to try to what? Actually apply it. Actually apply it. Live different in the business. You know, this, I'm going to, if I'm going to get to where I want to go, if I'm going to want to, if I'm going to be the person I want to be, I have to, I got to do it different. So when did you start implementing those things in the business that you would say are different? Was it a little along the way or was there like a watershed moment? It was, it was more incremental, but there was definitely a turn. You know, there was definitely I was going this way, now I'm going this way. And I just began to, to, to talk differently, to be more respectful, to be more humble. Um, it was about me, my change first. And then as my coworkers kind of saw that, they, they responded positively. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we were all pulling a little bit more in the same direction. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a big transition I would call it revolutionary, but it was kind of a quiet revolution. It wasn't like, yeah. you know, a loud, noisy thing. It was just more of things are different and we're going to be different and I'm going to be different. So the difference started with you. Yeah, it definitely it started with me. I was the one who needed to change. I was the one who was in many ways kind of throwing his weight around in the business gotcha. and you know, making the decisions, directing where things were going, determining how much we were going to do today, determining what the schedule was. I had assumed a lot of responsibility. And, and my father was seemed to be happy to give it to me. Um, the results were okay. And, um, you know, he was maybe at a point in his life where he was just happy to give over some of that he responsibility. You could see the value that you provided. That was part of it, I'm sure. But I think part of it was that he was tired and yeah. he, he wanted, uh, you know, he was, he was very willing to have someone pull a large part of the weight. As a competitive guy who's a bit of an alpha as well, I find it a tough transition to make from being, I got the answers, I'm going to plow ahead, we're going to do it this way to, okay, let me drop my sword and spear, let me deploy faith, let me listen, let me regard the ambitions of others more or the same as mine. That's really tough. It's a total shift. Yeah, definitely. It is a shift. But, you know, if 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 you can get that humility and, and just humble yourself and just recognize that, for me, it was maybe easier because I knew there were a lot more smarter people out there than myself. <laughs> um, and so it was maybe a little bit easier for like me that, that way. <clears throat> 
So that's really good. Um, let's keep that thought in mind as we go forward. I remember when you started developing fiberglass caps and um, for the listeners that don't know, in 1994, we started Wheaton Sprague and, and Ralph is a, a guy I knew who invested in my life. He came into the bedroom office at the time. We were bootstrapping, Richard and I. And you said, hey, I got a proposal. I'm going to build this plant. So when did you when did you make the shift that also led to the exponential growth? I mean, you were growing with metal caps, but you decided you needed to go to fiberglass. How, what did that look like? Yeah, well, that, that actually started also in 1982 when okay. we first initially started into the manufacture of fiberglass truck caps. And it went really well. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And we added on our initial building in Mount Eaton, Ohio, was added on to nine times. Wow. It was not what you would call a testament to long-term strategic planning. And we also then built another 60,000 square feet in a separate building in the same area, basically right up the hill from the original building. And we were putting out a lot of product. We were also pumping out a lot of VOCs, volatile organic compounds, into the air. And one thing led to another. The state of Ohio EPA got wind of us and came to visit and soon informed me that we were in violation of quite a few of their regulations, and we had some options. Mm. We could move to another state and take our pollution somewhere else. We could downsize our business about 25, uh, to about 25% of its size, or we could build what they called a controlled facility. And um, that's what we decided to do. We decided in 1994 to build a controlled facility. We built that facility in the city of Maslin. It was the first one of its type in our industry. It was basically a, a huge metal building that, that brought all of its sources of, of, of air to a regenerative thermal oxidizer that destroyed the VOCs in the air. So all of our, our fiberglass operations, all of our painting operations, all of the production um, gases and everything that came off of what we were doing were all being ducked back to this would be ducked back to this regenerative thermal oxidizer and we needed someone to help us put that facility together and that's when I came to you and said John how would you and Richard like to help us um, develop this facility which turned out to be a 240,000 square foot manufacturing facility in the city of Maslin with, and for the first time with this technology, uh, control technology on it, which wasn't anything um, new, but it was new for our industry. So you have RTOs, as they're called, you have them on all kinds of manufacturing facilities, but they had never been put on our type of facility. And so... You guys took up the challenge and made it happen. And uh, I think it was part of helping getting get you guys out of the bedroom and into some kind of an office. Yeah, it definitely was. And getting health insurance, too. Some simple things. It was quite a learning experience. Actually, I remember after I wrote the proposal, you came to me and you said that you had found 13 mistakes in the proposal, something like that. And to be more careful when I presented these things to customers, you knew my character and you were willing to extend um, an opportunity. But I remember that moment thinking, I'll never send out a proposal again without spell checking. I don't think I ever have since. So that was a good, one of those, one of those customer moments where, hey, uh, be careful. Yeah, it was, it was a learning experience for all of us. And, and um, you know, for me, it was, it was, a bit of a forerunner of what I hope to do in the future, which was to try to help launch new businesses. And even even early on, even in my 20s, I thought about a future where I might be more involved in launching other businesses and maybe less involved in being an operating guy in a major company. Mm -hmm. And so it, it was an experience of that way ahead of time of being important to you guys helping you get your business launched. And um, and you guys did 
more than an adequate job. I I don't remember, you know, a lot of the details. I'm sure we we had moments where we were both scratching our head about the yeah. the water we were swimming in, but um, you know, it it happened. The it facility did. is still there. We got it done. Still pumping out a lot of product, and um, yeah. Well, there's a gentleman. I don't know if he's still alive. His name is Robert L. Williams. He's an electrical engineer. He's a sage. He was wonderful. And he really took a liking to us as well. And I remember driving back from some of the meetings and Bob's famous statement was, well, how else are we going to learn? And he would always say, how else are we going to learn? How else are we going to learn? Let's just do it. Let's just do it. And he had discovered a lot of means and methods and actually problems from other clients that he identified in markets that he had never been in that people that were doing it incorrectly before. And so Richard and I, to this day, will look up at each other sometimes and go, well, how else are we going to learn? You know, I, I think, I think all of us in, back in those days had the, the, the three main qualities you need to, to, to launch any business. And that's that we were young, dumb, and enthusiastic. <laughs> And, yes, because we didn't have any money. I had no money. We had we 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 didn't have all that we needed, but we were we were we we were too dumb not to know young, what dumb, we didn't know. And energetic, enthusiastic, enthusiastic, young, yeah. dumb, and enthusiastic. I like that. That's yeah. going to be three good takeaways. There's a lot to be said for the enthusiasm and the naivete of not knowing what's around the corner. Yeah, I think as you get older, you are much more uh, apt to talk yourself out of things yeah. than you are when you're younger. I agree. Um, I, I can't imagine you um, in a bedroom office now. Right. <laughs> Starting something new. Um, yeah. It's just something you would talk yourself out of. Um, yeah, perhaps. And, and most people do. And, and so I just think that there is something to be said for that young, dumb, enthusiastic like that. mindset that we had. So what led to the development of that facility was actually a crisis moment. And you certainly couldn't make a decision to step back. You didn't want to move to another state. So we thought about it. it, Did you? (laughs) Yeah. So but did you see that crisis as a strategic opportunity too? you know, I wish I could say that everything we did was just so well thought out and planned but there is a lot there's always a lot that's happening outside of your control and you're often in a position where you have to respond to things that you know you wish you really didn't have to respond to and that was that was that the case then we we much would have rather just continued to add on and grow in our current facility we much would have rather not have the expense of of putting on these controls it ended up being a good thing to do from an environmental perspective and every other perspective. But at the time, you know, it just didn't, it wasn't the direction we were headed. And so you've, you've got to be flexible. You've got to, you've got to look at the circumstances that you're faced with and uh, take the path that, that seems like it'll get you to where you eventually want to go. Yeah. Okay. So, As you were doing that, you developed this uh, concept of doing good while doing good business. Like, when did that develop? Was that a slow transition like all the others? Were you doing this principle at ARE or was that after? No, it it was, I think, early on. I would say, like, in the mid-'80s, I really wanted to take what I was learning personally and make application of it at work. I I wanted to live an integrated life. I wanted to live an honest life. I didn't want to be one person on Sunday and another person Monday to Saturday. And for me that meant bringing into my work, you know, what what my what I was learning in my faith journey and trying to make it applicable. So trying to have the kind of work environment, create the kind of work environment that reflected what I thought work should be based on how I understood what the scriptures were saying, what I was learning from other wise people, and trying to make the workplace be 
a representation of what I thought it could be or what God wanted it to be. And so it was a constant evolve, evolution of bring to work what you're learning, make application of it, and, and see change and see transformation and see people um, feel better about work, feel better about themselves, um, get in touch with themselves, with their families. Um, and so it, it was this desire to, to have our workplace be someplace that was, I, I can't think of a better word to use than redemptive, mm. you know, where, where people could experience, um, you know, wrestle with the relevant questions of life, um, feel freedom to even ask them, mm-hmm. feel some space to, to reflect upon them. And so we tried to create that kind of, of, of an openness and, and uh, to have policies and procedures and to do things that, that really reflected what we felt were were good principles, right principles, biblical principles. And we tried to incorporate it into everything we did. Um, you know, how we designed work processes. You know, we, we would have debates about how much lean manufacturing is too much lean manufacturing. You know, at what point do you squeeze so much waste out of the pr- process that there is... There isn't even room to breathe. Mm-hmm. And how can that be human? You know, how can we do lean manufacturing, for instance, in a human way? Um, and so there was a lot of that kind of wrestling with what's the right thing to do? What's, what's the right thing to do when it comes to setting up a work process? Not just from the standpoint of what's most efficient or what's most effective, but what's good for the, the individual? What's good for the spirit? What's good for the person? So that when they come to work every day, we're not just squeezing the life out of them, but we're actually, they're actually getting life from their work as opposed to just having life taken from them as they come to work. So you were dealing with the whole person and the whole business, the whole community. Right. And what we realized is that there was a lot that we could contribute. There was a lot of good that we could do. Um, You know, I, I like to tell people that, that, I have three sisters and a brother, um, one, two social workers, one a teacher, and my brother was a Catholic priest for a time. And then there's me, the capitalist. And, <laughs> and, and I was cut from the same cloth. And so oh. I, I always had this idea that I could do some good things yeah. through this business somehow. And I, for me to feel fulfilled, we needed to be a business that was doing good. And of course, to Doing good is a lot easier when you're doing good business. When, when you've got, when you've got profits and you've got a margin and you've, you're able to to help people to, to um, to enjoy the fruits of their labor, and be able to contribute something to the community. Um, so so that was that was the mindset that we were bringing, and we would try. A lot of things. We did a lot of different things to try to make it real, not just something that was on the wall or, you know, something that we were, it wasn't something that we were just trying to talk about, but it was actually something we were trying to do. In fact, we didn't really talk about it a lot. It was, we wanted it to be about what we did about, our, did. about our actions. So you named one example, which was how do we set up lean manufacturing? How do we make a workstation that not just is productive, but it helps the person want to be there? Do you have another like practical example? Well, one thing that we did that I always felt really good about was we set up a very interesting tuition reimbursement program at our company, a lot of companies will will reimburse employees for money they spend on tuition for uh, training or or courses or classes that they take that relate to their job. Um, we decided to do it for courses and classes that didn't relate to their job at all, if that was their choice. Hmm. And what motivated that was going to a meeting one time at the city of Maslin where we were applying for a, a tax abatement. And there were 
a number of employees from Washington Steel who had showed up at this meeting to support their company's request for a tax abatement. Most of these guys were in their 50s and 60s. Now, at that time, most of our employees were in their 20s and 30s. And I looked at these guys, and I, I just felt kind of their brokenness from their years of hard labor at a steel company. And I thought, you know, I don't want our guys to look like that 20, 30 years from now. Mm-hmm. What's something practically we could do that would help them maybe get up and out of production into something else. You know, do this for a season, benefit from it, enjoy it, grow, grow, but you know, don't be doing it when you're 50 or 60, when your rotator cuff is shot and, and you know, your back is, is gone and every do, do, do something out. At least give them the option, not in a patronizing way, but give them the option to, to pursue something else. And so we had we had guys going to barber college. We had guys who were going to nursing school, wow. um, studying computer science, all kinds of things that had nothing to do wow. with their day-to-day work. And I, was, I felt really good about that. It's just something practical that it we is. could do that would help them have the opportunity to do something besides, you know, give their physical body to this work for the next 40 years so they knew you knew and they knew they probably weren't going to be there forever but certainly they were talking to their peers and saying hey you can have a job for five or eight or 10 or 15 years and maybe stay there or maybe move out and they'll help pay for it right that we would we would consciously try to provide a path out of this relatively strenuous labor um, it it was you put in a good day's work at our company. Yeah. We did everything we could, especially over time, to be more ergonomically correct and all of the things. We we worked at it um, and we spent money trying to get better at it. But it was a limit to how much you know you can do. There was a certain amount of bending, lifting, stretching, sure. um, you know, operating equipment that sure. was going to take a physical toll on a person's body, and we just didn't want. We wanted a person to have the option. We weren't going to force them to, to you know, move in a different direction, but we just wanted to have an option besides just having a broken down body at 60 or 65 years old. I think that's a great example. That'll resonate with a lot of people because we know many companies have started education program reimbursements, but many of them more centered on if you kind of do what we do, which makes sense in some organizations, maybe not in all. So you were true to the DNA of your company. That's really good. Um, You've made the statement before that there's no mission without margin. There's no doing good business, doing good without doing doing good good business, business. right? Um, Without a profit. I I mentioned this in the last podcast. I heard a, a guy who's very fastidious talk about how capital is what's left for productivity and investment after consumption. And we want to be careful with the businesses we invest in. So um, just speak to the importance of profitability for a minute, kind of your mindset around that. Yeah, well, I, I really believe that it's like critical, non-negotiable. You, you've got to achieve a profit in business for a lot of reasons, um, you know, to reward shareholders and all of the classical reasons, fund growth and all of that. Um to, to pay for your mistakes when you make mistakes and everyone does make mistakes. Um, but I think more importantly from where I'm coming from, if you want to have a business that has an impact in the lives of people, um, you need a margin to support that. You need to have profits that you can can channel towards the good things that you want to do in the world. And um, so, yeah, there's no... There's no doing that if you don't have the profits. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, profitability is just, it's critical to a business. I've been a part of companies that have done well from a bottom line standpoint and a part of companies that have done not so well. And when you, you don't do well, um, you know, you're part of a sick business. If, if there's the potential for that business to die, it gets so sick that it dies. And when you do do well, it's, you're a healthy business and 
And there's a lot you can do. There's a lot of you can do to sustain the business, of course, but also a lot that you can do in terms of just helping people, uh, giving to things that are that are important to you. Um, yeah, so that's all possible when a business is successful. And when it's not, you can't do those things. No. So you've described yourself and you're kind of a serial entrepreneur. Were you investing in other businesses while you were at ARE or did that happen mostly afterwards? Yeah, it happened after. Um, in 2006, I stepped down as CEO and began a process of, of stepping out of my role in the company and also my ownership in the company. And at that moment, I felt like I had kind of three choices. Um, I thought, well, you know, I've built one good company. I could maybe build another good company. Um, I thought, you know, I could, I could team up with somebody and help them build their company kind of as a, a number two or a support person in, in that business. And, you know, then a third option came to mind, and that's really what I've been pursuing for the last 15 years. And, and that's the option of, of taking what I've received from the work that I've done and deploying it and helping others start a number of businesses. So I've become something of an angel investor, serial entrepreneur, um, always on the lookout for people who are starting new projects and trying to be supportive in that, um, bringing, bringing expertise, bringing capital, trying to help them uh, pursue their dreams and the things that they feel called to do. And so that all started as I was transitioning out of the company I was leading. I was so operationally involved that it really couldn't happen without me coming out sure. it's not something that i could do concurrent with yeah you know managing 850 employees and right. all that came with that did you find it a difficult transition from owner operator kind of founder not exactly but yeah chief visionary to just investor advisor coach entrepreneur well not really. I, I didn't find it that difficult. There are times where I miss it. You know, I, I, I get into a factory and I hear the equipment humming and I see sure. the people and it, it's like I get the feeling like sure. I want to be back in this environment. Why did I ever step out of it? Um, but uh, no, I, I was able to transition without a lot of it was time, and you know, I, I actually have ended up where I thought I would be, where I thought I wanted to be, in my twenties. Hmm. Now in my sixties, I've ended up where I wanted to be. It's just that the path that I took to get there was not the one that I envisioned. It, Interesting. It, you know, we could do a whole nother conversation about, you know, that those critical times in two thousand five, two thousand six, when. Um, yeah, I stepped out of that role and into what I'm doing now. That's interesting. Um, we're getting towards the end of our time. And one of the questions I like to ask people is about mentorship. So um, you've mentored people. Almost everybody I've talked to has a mindset towards mentoring others. They've been mentored, whether formally or informally. So did you have a mentor that meant a lot to you? And what did that look like? Yeah, I had several um, in business, out of business. Um, there's there's one guy in particular that um, I would consider a mentor from from more of a a personal standpoint, more of a almost a personality standpoint. Um, Dave Johnson was a guy that I met in 1982, and he really helped me um, grow in my my faith. He um, but even beyond that, I think the thing that he did for me is that he trusted me hmm. to be a part of what he was doing. And I, I learned from him so much about giving people opportunity and trusting them. Um, I always uh, like to quote 
um, that great theologian Ringo Starr. Uh, Ringo <laughs> said once, I don't ask for much. I only want trust. And you know it don't come easy. Uh. And I, I am a person who really values the trust of others. And I've just found that when I extend trust to other people, typically they reward me. Mm. And Dave was the first person to extend trust to me, allow me to follow him around, give me opportunity in what he was doing. Let me try things, let me fail, let me succeed. And uh, I really appreciate his modeling that. And so I, you know, he's also a guy that stuck with me. When I met him, he was probably about 54 years old. I thought he was old then. He's in his late 80s now, and he's still calling me, still checking up on me, still walking with me. Still, try, still trying to help me uh, get along in life. And uh, that's the other thing that I think I really learned from him is that, you know, walk, if you find someone who's faithful, walk with them for a lifetime. And uh, yeah, don't give up on people, keep with them. And he really, really just modeled it for me. Well, you answered one of the questions that I was going to ask, which was do you find it difficult to extend trust? Like, how do you balance? grace and trust and putting it out there with somebody with the accountability towards expectations that can be a difficult balance yeah there's um you know one way to put it is the balance between grace and truth and you know accountability and how much you you know you hold people accountable for the things that they may where they maybe fall short and how much grace do you expend and it's a balancing act i look for integrity and honesty uh you know if if you have a good project and you have good people, typically you're going to get good results. I like that statement. You mentioned that before. Good project, good people, good results. Typically that's what's going to happen. Now, there are always things that can happen outside of your control, the 100-year flood or whatever, right. um, you know, wildfires in California or whatever. Things can happen outside of your control. But generally, good people or good soil, good projects, you're going to get good results. and. Final question, um, do you have a particular routine that helps keep you grounded and centered, healthy? You, you're a big mindset guy. You get a lot done. You, you're steady. You move forward. Is there anything in particular you do physically, mentally to help facilitate that? Yeah, well, I'm an early riser. I always have been. And uh, I just find that that having a good disciplined morning time of 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 spiritual exercises, physical exercises, and, and starting the day with a good breakfast um, does a lot to set up the rest of the day. Mm. And uh, I've been on that for the last 40-some years, and I find it's made a real difference. Um, it's something that I try not to ever miss. It just What I find is that if I start the day that way, that... I get a full 24 hours out of my day. Um, whenever I'm not able to do that, it seems like 24 hours becomes 18 or 19. For somehow, somehow, just yeah. a bit of the day slips away. <laughs> How early is early in terms of rising? Well, I I've kind of slacked off in my later years here. I'm sleeping in until five o'clock now. Okay. But um, for many years, it was it was three fifty. Three fifty was my getting up time. Wow. Yeah. Of course, then people always ask me, what was my going to bed time? <laughs> yeah. Which was usually, you know, 9 to 9.30. So you still got six hours sleep. Yeah, so. yeah. But Jocko Willink, you know, he's always saying 4.30 a.m. If you want to get a jump on the world, you want to be ready and you want to be on top of things, 4.30 a.m. That's the magic time because you'll beat the competition, etc. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have a great quote before we go. I, you said it to me a few weeks ago about the neighborhood. And I, I'd like to leave people with this comment, especially in this environment where there's so much divisiveness, you know, in the world and trying to change the world. But what, what's the statement? How did it speak to you? Yeah, well, I, I, I heard a, an old rock and roller um, say this on a television show a couple months ago, and it's really stuck with me. Um, and it, it spoke to me because 
you know, I, I was cut from some cloth that said, you know, you can make a difference in the world. You can make change. You can be a part of something. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, when we were young, we thought we would change the world. But now that we're old, we realize that we're just here to help the neighborhood. And it spoke to me because, you know, I'm starting to feel that at where I am now in life that, yeah, you know, I thought I could do a lot. I thought I could bring a lot of change um, and some good, a lot of good things were done. But I think as I've gotten older, I realize, especially now at this point in life, that, you know, it was really about the local. It was really about the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I'm here for, to just help the neighborhood. I like that. That's a great way to close. It's easy to try to build a legacy with those people out there that don't really know us, but building a legacy from the inside out, family, neighbor, literal neighbor, community, friends, extended, you know, that's what really makes an impact. Well, that's going to conclude our time. Um, Thanks for being here. Thanks for the energy. Appreciate it. It's been great. Josh, thanks for the uh, engineering and audio work and setting up the podcast. Thanks to our listeners. We appreciate you. Um, We're on Buzzsprout. You may be pulling it from there. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, number of places you can find the podcast. We appreciate all the downloads and interest thus far. And thank you. We'll talk to you next time.